Hello and welcome to Hell's for Hyphen. It's for June 2018. I am writer Hyphen, very serious fan who has raised $200 million to remake the most recent entry in the Carry On series, Lee Zachariah. And with me, as always, is. Hello, I'm writer Hyphen, film critic Hyphen, in serious need of an upgrade, Rochelle Semenovich. Well, speaking of upgrade, let's talk about the films of this month, starting <laughs> with. Upgrade. Oh, no, Ocean's 8. <laughs> Maybe we should start with Upgrade, but no, let's do Ocean's 8. It's um, the all-female spin-off from the slick heist Oceans franchise. Sandra Bullock plays Debbie Ocean, the estranged sister of legendary conman Danny Ocean. George Clooney appears here as a photo. Fresh out of jail, Debbie contacts her old biker mate, Kate Blanchett, and together they assemble a team of feisty crooks. These are played by Rihanna, Sarah Paulson, Mindy Kaling, Helena Bonham Carter and Orkafina. Their goal is to pull off the heist of the century at the New York City's annual Met Gala and steal a Cartier necklace worth $150 million. Lee, did this film sparkle for you or is it a big old fake? Yes. <laughs> both? Uh, yeah, a little bit of both. What works about it is the cast. Yeah. It's a great cast. I love watching them bounce off each other. I love their chemistry. I really enjoyed that. But it's a heist film. And the plot mechanics are supposed to make sense. You can't sort of hand wave them. Mm. The whole point of it is that everything's meant to work and it doesn't. Like, it doesn't really make sense, mm. the, the the heist. So that frustrated me because it was really supposed to do one thing and didn't really do it that well. But I still really liked it. It seemed like a lot of this heist worked through happy coincidence. Mm. Even though they kept telling us how intricately it had been planned by yes. Debbie while she was in jail for five years, but really it all it all could have fallen apart so easily if one little thing didn't kind of coincide with another. I don't think it was a great script. Yeah. But yeah, I just loved seeing these women on screen all together. It's just so much fun to see a film where women really have no interest in men in a romantic sense. I mean, yeah, there's a kind of a little bit of a revenge plot going on, but it's just the women doing this thing that they want to do. And I particularly enjoyed Kate Blanchett in yeah. this film, in yeah. her sort of butchy role, and the sexual tension there with her and Sandra Bullock. Yeah. I'm sure someone could have made a much edgier film with those two women having something more going on. Absolutely. The cast is winning, which is why I think Make an Ocean's Nine maybe get... Like, I really like Gary Ross. I like him a lot. I was yeah, he's glad done some he great stuff, it. hasn't he? Like, yeah. um, Big and Dave and Pleasantville. Pleasantville. I mean, he's capable of intelligent comedy. And, I, you know, I'm happy for him to direct the next one. I, just, <laughs> I, I would like someone else to script it, I think. Yeah. I think you need a really good heisty-type screenwriter because I don't think someone hanging outside a toilet when there's a heist going on inside is the greatest alibi in the world. I think it's the opposite. Uh, that's just one of, like, I've got 20 of these. <laughs> Ocean's 9. I'm looking forward to Ocean's 9. Okay, Upgrade. It's the near future, and plausibly named mechanic Grey Trace is left paralysed after a brutal mugging that takes the life of his wife and puts Grey in strife. But Grey's life is saved-ish when a billionaire he happens to know offers him a cutting-edge uh, technique that will uh, get him back on his feet. After the operation, ably performed by Hellas for Hyphenates alumnus Mingzhu Hai... <laughs> Grey discovers that his body can now be controlled by an AI called Stem, but Stem may have different ideas to Grey about how to go about their revenge plan. Rochelle, did the artificial intelligence controlling your physical movements enjoy Upgrade as much as I did? 
Oh, God. I wish I did have a stem implant right now. I saw this film on one hour of sleep the <laughs> night before and a full day of work beforehand. Perfect. It was very difficult to know whether I wasn't totally into the film because I just wanted to go to home to bed. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I could see there were some really interesting ideas and some really good execution of those ideas. This is, you know, really low-budget but high-concept sci-fi from producer Jason Bloom, who's, you know done Get Out and Paranormal Activity and it was shot in Melbourne so it mm. had that um, kind of interest to Balti me Bridge. <laughs> Did I love it? No. There were some exhilarating fight scenes in it though, weren't there? Mm. There were. It was very, very well shot. Yeah. I think it was a very silly, silly film and I mean that as a compliment. <laughs> um, it's It leans into the absurdity of the premise and I, I do wish it had gone slightly further. It kind of feels like it's starting to run out of ideas by the end, even though it's yeah. got a good ending. It just needed one more push to get it into like confirmed classic territory, and I don't know where that push lies. I, I feel that I, there's one, just one missing piece of the puzzle, but it's so well executed, as you say, and it's got such a great denouement. I'm very happy to overlook my quibbles. Yeah, I don't know. I think the fact the main character is called Grey Trace is just... Like, says what the film's trying to achieve, which yeah. is it's a B movie and it should be enjoyed as such. Exactly. And uh, written and directed by Lee Winnell of Saw, Saw yes. franchise, most notably. Um, his first film was Insidious 3, and this is his second one mm. as director, but he's obviously a really established writer yeah. and um, made a film called The Mule in Melbourne. Oh, I really, I forgot he did, did that. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I really dug that one. I think he one. acted yeah. in it as well as wrote that. Did he? Yeah. Right. Yeah, I should watch that again. That was really good. Yeah. yeah. He's a talent to watch. Mm. Upgrade. It's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Put that on the poster. <laughs> Our next film is completely different. It's an Israeli war drama, Foxtrot, written and directed by Samuel Mayos, whose debut was the 2009 film Lebanon. Foxtrot was the winner of the Silver Lion at Venice last year. The story opens with the knock at the door dreaded by all parents of soldiers Middle-aged couple Michael, Leo Ashkenazi, and Daphna, Sarah Adler, go through gut-wrenching grief and anger at the news their son Jonathan has been killed. Meanwhile, at a remote military outpost, Jonathan and three fellow soldiers pass the time dancing, talking, and watching the shipping container they live in slowly sink into the sand. Surprising twists and lyrical moments ensue in this dreamlike, disturbing film about war, guilt, fate, and family. Lee, was Foxtrot a film you enjoyed dancing with? <laughs> uh, it was. It was. I'm a big fan of this filmmaker. Uh, Lebanon is one of my favourite mm. films. And I rewatched it again before watching oh, Foxtrot. Really? Yeah, I've been looking for an excuse to pop it on again. That was set entirely within a tank. Yeah. And he really likes his tight point of view shots, his tight, like, he, he loves confined spaces. So I, I think I was more focused. I was sort of treating it like a filmmaker of the month, focusing on the, the connective tissue between his films. Maybe I shouldn't have watched Lebanon. Maybe I should just have watched it on its own terms. I don't know. It, it's a really good film. Foxtrot is a really good film. Although perhaps watching them back to back did drive home the fact that both films have a soldier telling other soldiers a story about an adolescent sexual awakening. Yeah. And for some reason that really threw me off the whole film. I was like, is he? Is there only one type of story he can tell adapted ah. to? And I don't even know if that's a bad thing, but it was so prescriptive in, yeah. its, in, in its structure that I thought he's got a very maybe autobiographical, very specific mm. sense of what soldiers do when they're in a confined space and how they interact, that it feels like this is he just keeps riffing on this idea. 
Well, Lebanon was inspired by his own experience as a tank gunner mm. in the Israeli army, which apparently he left after the 1982 war with post-traumatic stress disorder. So maybe these are the films of someone with post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, Could these be, are these yeah. things. But um, it's a very stylish film. You mm. know, so many of these shots are from above. It's yeah. very graphic and perfectly framed. And you just, yeah, there's, there's this real surreal kind of sensibility, which I think works well with that idea of grief and trauma. You know, the father, after he's been told that his son has died, just keeps getting told to drink a glass of water mm. every hour. And um, it just takes you right into that sort of, that moment where the clock's ticking, time's passing, and you just don't know how you're going to get from one moment to the next. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a powerful film. Yeah, it is. Speaking of powerful films, Incredibles 2. Uh, it's been 14 years since the events of Pixar's The Incredibles, but that's only out here in the real world. In the film world, nary a moment has passed since the subterranean attack of the Underminer who appeared at the end of the last film. The kids are all the same age as superheroes are still illegal, but a rich businessman wants to rehabilitate them, and his PR strategy involves Elastigirl filming some daring do in order to make everyone love the supers again. Meanwhile, Mr. Incredible has to stay home and look after the kids, a task to which he is only moderately prepared, particularly after he learns that baby Jack-Jack has all the powers. The incredible series posits that mothers get stretched in all directions. Rochelle, did you stretch into a cinema to see this film? <laughs> oh, I certainly did. I even had a kid in tow. Look, I enjoyed it, mm. but I did feel like this film has sort of stretched the idea perhaps a little too far. I mm -hmm. hope they're not going to make an Incredibles 3 because I think this cow has been milk dry. Counterpoint, I hope they make an Incredibles 3. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, yeah. yeah. Well, um, tell me, did you feel like the villain plot actually worked in this film? Yes. Okay. But maybe not for the reasons that were intended. So this is the reason I was so interested in this film was that when the first film came out, it was part of that strange wave of postmodern films that attempted to deconstruct the superhero film before superhero films had really taken off. Mm. So you think like Mystery Men, The Specials, uh, Hancock, M. Night Shyamalan's Unbreakable, the films that preceded the Marvel and DC wave of, of ubiquity. And deconstructing superheroes was not what The Incredibles set out to do. It was more of a straightforward, sincere superhero family film doing what ultimately none of the Fantastic Four films would succeed at doing. But between Edna Mode's speech about the uselessness of capes and the fact that the villain was a fanboy, it did provide a real commentary on the genre. And what I was interested in was seeing how Incredibles 2 sort of bookended that rise of, of, of superhero films before the first and the second. It's unintentionally and temporarily serving as a parenthesis for this upswell because there are going to be more superhero films. So yeah. when we look back, it'll have appeared in the middle of the movement. I think it ultimately does the same as the first film. Primary concern is the family dynamics and the drama, uh, set pieces, amazing action beats, and deconstruction takes a back seat, which is how it should be. But you asked about the villain, and I'm going to dip into spoiler territory, so if you haven't seen the film, <laughs> fast forward a couple of minutes. We are expected to think that the corporate sponsor guy voiced by Bob Odenkirk is the surprise villain, but he's not. And I think the corporate boss guy turning out to be A-OK -okay is extremely telling in the age of Disney. Disney owns Pixar, who has made this film, and they're dominating the superhero genre now that they've bought Marvel. And that's where the postmodernism shines through for me. I think that it's mostly there to be a misdirect, purely to throw us off the scent of how we expect these films to go. But I cannot help but read that subtext into it 
the corporate guy is okay. He just wants the best for you. Ah. And that's what I found super interesting about. You really need to write a thesis on I think I just did. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've, I've got to say that I think the person who turns out to be mm-hmm. the real villain is very good. And yes. I did like that, but I saw it a million miles away before it came. I mean, as with the first um, Incredibles movie, the real gold is with the family dynamic and seeing that these people may be superheroes but they're just like, you know, any other family struggling with, you know, conflict and the the fact they want to be together but they they all have different ideas about, you know, what a good life is Mm. and how to get along. And Holly Hunter as Elastigirl, she gets to do some really interesting stuff here, Elastigirl, but I think the heart of the film is with Mr. Incredible being at home with the baby. And that is a kind of retro plot. And yet, even in this day and age, we still have to remark that it's remarkable that the woman gets to go out to work and the dad gets to stay at home. You know, it's kind of like, this is how far we haven't come, that this is still kind of a sort of, you know, liberated superhero movie. I mean, but this family's always had more in common with, like, the Flintstones or mm. the Jetsons than it has to any actual contemporary television yeah, family. That's probably true. Um, but I think the real sort of moments where the film kind of went into kind of anarchic, exciting territory for me were with baby Jack-Jack, who's mm. this baby with amazing superpowers. It's it's kind of scary and terrifying, and I don't know if they fully exploited that, but it's the only moment for me where I really didn't know what the film was going to do with what it had created yeah i think yeah you really want to push that idea as far as you can but then it's just going to be like the bloodiest r-rated film ever (laughs) where this baby (laughs) accidentally kills everyone um i will say just off the idea of the 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 disney villain thing i mentioned or disney non-villain i don't know if this happened in your session but the film was preceded by a trailer for the wreck it ralph sequel yes did you get that yes i love the first wreck it ralph right absolutely adore it the sequel trailer is one of the most terrifying pro-corporate pieces of propaganda I've ever seen in my life, and I'm hoping I'll be mistaken when the final film comes out. But unless Ralph actually does destroy the whole internet system of commodification forever, which will never happen, I don't think I will be wrong. So we're entering a more overtly pro-corporate phase, and I think just watching that trailer back-to-back with this film, the corporate guy is the good guy, I'm just a little scared of where these kids' films are going. Just a little bit. Well, if we're going to talk about it in such deep uh, political terms, I am. I sort of thought this was a really nostalgic vision of innate power triumphing over the democratic process because oh, yeah. you know you've got the these uh, superheroes who aren't allowed to be special because I don't know insurance, mm. um, you know legislation, and because the people are scared of them and they're causing too much damage. But the message of the film is these people are better than everybody else and we should let them do that and it doesn't really matter what the people want. Yeah. Oh, no, I, That's I a totally bit scary, agree. That's scary, really, when you it think about scary. it. It is scary. And there was that kind of Ayn Randian bent in the mm. first film where you're like, oh, yeah, if everybody's special, then nobody is. Yeah. Hang on, what are we saying exactly? Mm. But let's make them really cute, likeable family so that we yeah. can just slip that idea under the radar. Yeah. I mean, I don't even mind that the philosophical idea just being raised as a question, as something yeah. you consider. It's a bit different from the pat everyone is special thing, which mm. is what we get with every film that just has this generic template of morality that doesn't really examine it. It's just like, everyone's special, everyone should be friends. Mm. And this actually has an idea behind it, even if the idea maybe doesn't stand up to scrutiny or can be pushed against. I don't mind that so much as the, uh, I guess, all the, the business side of it. 
but hey, maybe, maybe we can talk about it again when uh, Wreck-It Ralph 2 comes out, because <laughs> I think, I have a feeling I'm going to have a lot to say about that. Does that mean I'll have to watch Wreck-It Ralph 1? It sure does. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. Well, we've had a lot of filmmaker guests on the show recently, and one thing we've been increasingly interested in is the challenge they face in finding the audience. The pipeline from maker to viewer is becoming increasingly complicated, increasingly varied, increasingly democratized, and this is something we're hyper aware of in the age of streaming services and infinite distribution models. Someone who would know a little something about this is the director of indie films such as The Color Wheel, Listen Up Philip, Queen of Earth, and Golden Exits. Alex Ross Perry, welcome to Hell is for Hyphenance. Thank you for having me. Now, you're a young filmmaker at the start of your career, yet the landscape has changed in massive ways since you began making movies. Has that changed your approach in any way? Well, not to the creative process of writing or making them necessarily. I think if anything has changed whatever thoughts or expectations I sort of go into the movie's second life with from the festival premiere onward, it's also fractured in the kinds of movies that seem to exist in a very traditional way or very traditional movies. And while I suppose people could cynically just say, this is what I must make in order to reach that, um, Certainly the, the two movies I've made since Listen Up, Philip, uh, Queen of Earth and Golden Exits are, are sort of deliberately idiosyncratically uncommercial art films. So if anything, I, I responded to it by going in the opposite direction rather than saying, I don't want to lose this game, so I'll just take my ball and go home. Hmm. Right. Look, four years ago, I was writing film festival synopses and I was tasked with doing a write-up for a film called Listen Up, Philip. And I remember reading all the info as I was doing the write-up and going, God, this looks great, but if I don't see it at this festival, is there a danger I won't see it at all? And this is a film with, you know, Elizabeth Moss and Jonathan Price and Jason Schwartzman. You know, once upon a time, this would have been in every cinema back when I, you know, started going to the movies in the 90s. This would have been an easy thing to find. And yet in the 2010s, I was worried about maybe not being able to see it at all if I didn't catch one of the two or three screenings at this festival. Is that something that concerns you or is that just part of the model? Well, that, that came to concern me really with my, my experiences with that film because uh, on the color wheel before that and, and Impolex before the color wheel, I had no expectation that those were the kinds of movies that would, for example, warrant any sort of release in Australia. Listen up, Philip, I just sort of assumed that it would have some token release in most major countries worldwide, which in a way it ultimately did. But I did sort of increasingly throughout that process and then taking it into the, the next couple of films become aware that in many ways the festivals are, you know, essentially the beginning, middle and end of distribution for most movies in most countries, which unfortunately just means in most major cities. So my prior relationships and, you know, sort of participation with a festival in Australia, Melbourne International, for example, means that my movies will be on screen there for two or three screenings. It also increasingly means that, as you said, that is almost certainly someone's only chance to see Golden Exits in a movie theater in Australia, mm. which is, you know, twice in one city. But if you're lucky, that means that at some point in the next year or so, it's on iTunes or some local video-on-demand platform or some other equivalent. But 
increasingly with with these last two movies it really you know even in places like england or france you know your, your handful of festival screenings are, are very likely to be the extent of your movie's theatrical life in many countries and while that is certainly frustrating it places an increased sense of reverence on my part for the festival programmers for doing that work. It's not just, oh, so nice that the film is playing at 40 festivals. Of course that's nice, and it always has been, but now it's even, you know, well, I hope that the people who saw the last couple of movies in, in Melbourne are going to go to this because this is, this is their conversation with me mm. until such time comes that I, I make something that goes beyond what, independent movies are currently being given do you have that thing that uh i think some filmmakers like christopher nolan and so on who make you know sort of the big imaxy films have where they they have this need for their films to be seen on the biggest screen possible in the most immersive way possible are you at all bothered that your films are more likely to be discovered on a streaming service rather than in the cinema well, I suppose I would be somewhere in the middle. I mean, I certainly haven't made anything on the visual level of Nolan where I, I really feel like it's insulting to even consider not experiencing <laughs> it in the theater. While I obviously prefer that and prefer discovering movies that way myself, you know, I, I mean, the, the sort of at-home option, I guess I don't really understand people's complete aversion to it, perhaps just because I grew up in the 80s where, you, you know, for me, videotapes or everything and, and watching movies on cable was everything and th there's there's hardly a, a canonical masterpiece that i love that i didn't first experience on home video in some way mm. so i guess just because of my my lifelong love of video it never really made sense to me to be that opposed to people watching my movies on video whatever that term means these days the, the difference is only the path for me watching Barry Lyndon on videotape for the first time <laughs> means that it's already a masterpiece, whereas someone watching a brand new movie at home on video for the first time means that they have to ask questions about what this movie means and where it comes from. So sort of like the destination is the same, and it's a destination that I believe in, but unfortunately the, the journey doesn't allow the, uh, the traveler, in this case the film, to arrive at its destination with as, as, as many stamps in its passport, so to speak. It shows up with nothing <laughs> at home, like my movies do, or perhaps, you know, a few festival screenings and a review or two versus the movies I discovered, which showed up at home as movies I already knew I needed to see. But, you know, in terms of uh, discovering movies at home, I believe it's certainly possible. I mean, I saw many great films at home for the first time, as did Nolan, uh, mm. as, as did everybody. Nobody born after the 1920s exclusively discovered films in the theater. Very true. This is, this is a slightly tangential point, and uh, I'm, I'm prepared to be shot down if uh, I'm just talking out my ass. But So I think it's very interesting that we're in a time where we don't quite know how to define a movie star. You know, once upon a time there were personalities that could draw people to films simply by virtue of their name being on the poster but I don't think that's been true of really any Hollywood star in a very long time but there's that next tier of recognizability where you see an ensemble of names whose work you know and admire not people who would necessarily be a draw on their own but who provide a sort of level of appeal and familiarity for a particular crowd your films have Elizabeth Moss, Catherine Waterston, uh, Patrick Fugit, Jason Schwartz and Mary Louise Parker aside from them being great actors 
is there any sort of calculation knowing that the sorts of films they've been in in the past, like Inherent Vice, uh, Rushmore and so on, might attract a similar audience that sort of sees them as cues to, oh, you love them in this, so you'll probably like this type of film? Well, I, I think, you know, I'm in terms of casting, I'm only drawn to the people that I'm drawn to because they're people who I, I am a fan of or I, I just like I like the thought of, of them. Personally, I'm just drawn to a fairly specific type of actor. And therefore, when I'm thinking about who I want to try to collaborate with, I'm only drawn to the same people whose work I like as opposed to the people who exist, but I don't necessarily understand what they would mean in, in my own movie. Any attempts that I've found that anybody, myself or others in the industry at this point in time, tries to make to say, if so-and-so is in this movie, then it will be more marketable and it will be more valuable and more people will see it. I think any attempt to cast a movie with that in mind results in a miscast movie and a movie that is just automatically worse than the than the honest version of the movie you know it just depends on what you're able to get away with in terms of how many roles you have and what your sort of casting ideas are but Mm. it's just being aware of the movies you're trying to make and you know you make something like golden exits where i knew in advance what kind of budget we'd be getting so therefore i knew that i wasn't asking for for so much money that the investors were going to really care about who was in the movie in terms of marketability, which meant I could just put together a cast of seven actors who I genuinely wanted to work with and thought were all best for the movie. And I'm not making an expensive enough movie that anyone says, well, I like them, but I, just, I don't think they're really a big enough name to be in this kind of movie. <laughs> it's like, what kind of movie? This movie is <laughs> going to cost you basically nothing. And it's going to be a small, dialogue-driven, deliberately slow art film. So I don't really think it matters who we put in it. We could put the biggest star in the world in it. It's still going to be that movie that most people don't want to watch. So you've co-written the screenplay to Disney's upcoming Christopher Robin. Is it relaxing to know that you can sit back and just watch as the film gets put in front of millions of eyeballs? Or is there part of you that wishes that the films you direct could get that kind of promotion? Well... I'm very, I mean, yes, it's very, it is just fundamentally and mathematically exciting to think that, you know, in, in America, like a movie that opens on Friday, technically, you know, has a couple screenings Thursday night, usually for a little bit of extra box office. Mm. It's very exciting to know that Christopher Robin will make more on Thursday night before it even opens officially than all of my other movies have made <laughs> combined times 10. I think that's very interesting. It's more interesting, you know, and this is like a, a way to sort of ask people what their relationship is with their own work, because I, you know, I, it's not that I really changed who I am or what I'm interested in while I was writing that movie. And it's just, it, there's something to be said for the weird kind of conversation in my mind that something that came from me and is very personal and very thought out and very, in my mind, similar to a lot of other things I do in my other movies, will be worthy of a worldwide release and being seen by tens of millions of people and will be understood by children and their parents and, you know, and, and yet it it makes me think, you know, there's to me, there's not a huge difference between this and anything else I've done in terms of the, the work itself. And it just, you know, if you're confident in the idea of who you are, then I think you should be confident with the idea that things you do deserve to be seen by as many people as possible. 
And while a movie like Listen Up, Philip would never have the marketing or the sort of reach of a Disney movie, the idea that, you know, somebody, producers, executives, what have you, determine that I'm somebody whose who's creative ideas and, and contributions to a project with, you know, thousands of other people involved are, are worth being seen by that many people and having that much, you know, money spent on it and marketing for months, it does give me a little bit of, of confidence to say, well, you know, yeah, I mean, my own work is, it's all my own work, so it's all this good. Now, certainly it's very anomalous to have the biggest company in the world releasing something that you're involved with, but to me, it's just, it makes me say, you know, well, yeah, I'm, I, I can do that. I'm, my, my ideas can travel. I, I, you know, there could be a time where I'm in some remote part of some faraway country that I've never been of and hmm. never, never been to or heard of or anything. And I find someone who's seen that movie 10 years from now and they say that they liked it, you know, and I think, yeah, I mean, part of me thinks that my ideas are good enough to travel all over every corner of the world and find every person who would want to go see them. And I think just as a filmmaker, you kind of, you have to believe in yourself in some capacity or else what makes you sit down and write or what makes you corral a crew and actors together to execute your movie. Mm-hmm. And I think something like this is just proof that there's something to be said for the way in which you believe in yourself, which is, you know, I think I have good ideas and I think I'm good at, good enough at what I do for where I am professionally and when a company like Disney says, I agree, let's put these words, let's put these words together on a page and then we'll put them out there in front of a hundred million people. It's like, okay, well, I must be, I must be good. I'm not greatest of all time. I'm not the greatest at this time, but I, you know, this wouldn't happen if I wasn't good. Yeah. It gives me confidence to keep working, which is really the only thing I think you need. So, Alex, which filmmaker have you selected for your filmmaker of the month? Uh, I selected Alan Pecula. Pecula. Never, never been clear on how to pronounce this. Is it Pecula or Pecula? Uh, until you said that, I didn't realize. I don't know that either. I've been saying Pecula. Uh, I'm not sure if that's correct. I know what I said. I always said uh, Pecula as well. As, it always, could be either. It could. It could it be could. either. Well, let's, uh, let's mix know. and match. Yeah, well, let's mix and match. But also, let's keep this in mind because... Any point I'm going to make is is going to be intrinsically tied to the fact that this is, I, I think, one of the most major American filmmakers who contributed, you know, movies to the the canon of 70s, 80s, and 90s cinema that cannot be discounted, and yet is not a household name. And in fact, a couple of uh, movie fans like ourselves, there's actually not a consensus on how to pronounce this name. Good point. I did, I did, I did watch an interview with him at some point to uh, confirm this years ago, but I no longer remember the answer. <laughs> Wikipedia says Pecula. Okay, we'll go with Pecula. Um, so, uh, what, when did you first uh, discover his works? What was the one that hooked you in? Well, I mean, I would say, like everybody, you know, that would be all the president's men. Mm. When you're discovering the world of cinema, and then therefore the world of American cinema, and then therefore the world of 70s cinema, you discover his films. But very, very interestingly, I think, you know, and this is kind of what we, we can talk about. You discover them, I think, not as much of pieces of a body of work as when you discover The Godfather, The Conversation, and Apocalypse Now as saying Mm. these are all films made by the same director. It's entirely possible to watch All the President's Men, Clute, and Parallax View and not have it be beaten into you that these are made by the same person. (laughs) I mean, if you're educated or you're educating yourself, that is true. That is obvious. But if you're 
14 years old and renting classic movies on video, these are just movies you keep hearing about in documentaries or you keep reading about in books. But unlike a lot of people from that generation, they're not exclusively talked about as products of a filmmaker. Mm. But certainly All the President's Man would have been the first film of his I saw. And uh, certainly Clute and Parallax View would have been the uh, the other the other ones that I saw early on. But I do feel like it's it's possible as a young person discovering film to maybe not see Clute or Parallax View right away. I think it's impossible to avoid All the President's Men. It, it's quite possible to uh, come to those two films later. Mm. Yeah, uh, that's that's certainly how I approached it. I didn't see uh, Parallax until quite recently. Uh, a couple of years ago, so um, and whereas all the presidents, man, is is something I basically have on repeat all the time. It's uh, I find it interesting that that you say uh, you wouldn't necessarily connect Clute and Parallax and all the presidents, men as being the work of the same filmmaker, uh, especially given watching all of his films in preparation for this and finding those sort of those ones that slot in between, like uh, the Sterile Cuckoo, which was his first film as director, with Liza Minnelli as this carefree college student, and Love and Pain and the Whole Damn Thing, about a shy teenager travelling around Spain, which to me feel like if, if, if you'd kept the credits off those, I, I would never in a million years have picked Peculiar as the director of those, uh, know, knowing him as, you know, the guy behind all the paranoid thrillers of the, of the 70s and, you know, even the 90s. Certainly, and I, I'm not saying that uh, an educated person paying attention to the, the style of the films wouldn't know they're by the same person, because, of course, those three films clearly are. I just mean mm. that the way that they're presented to you, you know, if you, if you pick up a videotape of the Parallax View in 1995, it might not necessarily say from Alan Pecula, the director of All the President's Men on it, whereas any video you would pick up of a, of a Coppola film would say from the director of The Godfather on it. Mm. Just because, you know, All the President's Men is a Dustin Hoffman, Robert Redford movie. Parallax View is a Warren Beatty movie. Clute is a Jane Fonda movie. Star Al Cuckoo is a Liza Minnelli movie. So he kind of had the misfortune of having his earlier films, all great movies, be more star vehicles than mm. him being the star because that's kind of you know, a fascinating type of filmmaker. He, he's not really a, a workman or a journeyman. His movies are all unmistakably the same artistic mind behind them, clearly to me, right down to the editing, always. I mean, every one of his films has these moments where a shot or a scene will end about two seconds earlier than your brain is, is wired to tell you that it's going to. This yeah. goes up through Pelican Brief, Consenting Adult. He does this all the way until the end this weird kind of pacula cut that is sudden and jarring. And, uh, you know, that that's unmistakable, but his, his movies are, are these star vehicles that sort of retroactively don't fit the entire narrative of what 70s American cinema has come to represent. You know, Sophie's Choice is not just a massively influential movie. It's, it's a, that's a Meryl Streep movie. Mm. That's a movie that, you know, to say to people, you know, it's the same director as All the President's Men. Really? I mean, not film people, but, you know, the layman. That's not clear. That That's a, that's a serious, dramatic, weepy Meryl Streep film. That's not a paranoid thriller from the director of Clute. Yeah. And there's just something strange about that. And just as time goes on, as his movies become, you know, so clearly still a part of the, the culture, 
to the way that you know recently the post just essentially ends with the opening shots of all the president's men mm. he just doesn't fit the narrative of what people have come to want an american filmmaker from the 1970s to be he, he's not like a young film school guy who's coming at what he does from this love of cinema like all the people that are kind of easier to historically contextualize is one of these guys that kind of just rose up through the Hollywood system over a long career of, you know, producing and, and you know, maybe writing as well, behind, you know, as an uncredited writer as on films he produced, and then kind of graduates to being a director and makes films that go hand in hand with what everybody kind of wants to write the history of the 70s about, you know, all the President's Men or Parallax View or fantastic double feature with the conversation. Hmm. But, you know, Clute, great double feature or something like Looking for Mr. Goodbar, directed by Richard Brooks. Like, there, there's these filmmakers like Pecula and, you know, Richard Brooks and Franklin Schaffner. Like, a lot of these, these filmmakers just didn't become the same kind of name that your Coppola's and De Palma's and Scorsese's did, even though you can't talk about the decade without acknowledging that three or four of this guy's films are definitely in the top 50 most important American films of the 70s. But he himself doesn't necessarily become part of the uh, agreed-upon narrative of what American cinema in the 70s meant in terms of the people who actually made the movies. He only fits the narrative in terms of the style and content of the movies. And therefore, rather than being, you know, someone who we know how to pronounce his name, <laughs> becomes someone who made five or six masterpieces in his career and nothing will ever take that away. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think uh, the, the thing that drove home that idea that he's not one of the greats uh, I found it almost impossible to find a copy of Orphans, a 1987 film we made with Albert Finney and Matthew Modine. I eventually tracked it down. There was a very small video store in the corner of, uh, of Melbourne that just happened to have ordered a copy in from the States. But I was thinking, you know, someone like Hitchcock, even his most obscure films are still parts of collections. You can still sort of instantly access those films from those canonised directors, whereas... I, th I think it is those sort of next tier people like Pacula who aren't recognised, aren't, aren't the name above the title kind of kind of auteurs, whose lesser works aren't as easy to track down, which is a shame because there's so much, the the quality he brought to those confirmed classics is still absolutely present in even the films that may, might not work as well, might not have been well remembered, might not have made as big an impact. You know, there is still a peculiar, a peculiar. I'm going to start calling him peculiar. Uh, Pacula film is still something that I think must be sought out, whether it's, it's one of the greats or or a title we've never heard of before. Sure. I mean, you know, talking about the the sort of relationship of movies that become part of the culture and availability. You know, when I was going through my big uh, Pacula phase years ago. Um, you know, Sterile Cuckoo was not then and may still not be available on DVD. It was at the time kind of a difficult tape to track down, which is interesting for a filmmaker who, you know, as I said, you know, he, he only worked for studios. He didn't make independent movies with new money popping up here and there, and therefore they'd lead to complicated rights issues. A movie of his has been kind of hard to track down or it's not on streaming or it's never been on DVD or certainly Blu-ray. 
like Sterile Cuckoo and you know, Orphans maybe and Dream Lover. I don't know if that ever came out. A lot of these movies ended up coming out in the sort of, you know, 2010s Warner Archive type releasing mm-hmm. where studios were just dumping movies that had never been available on DVD onto these made-to-order DVDs. But for a filmmaker who only worked for studios and made three films that you know, there'll always be an anniversary edition of All the President's Men. There will always be an anniversary edition of Clute. To have these films kind of in the middle that become unavailable it is very strange. And that's, again, like, that's just part of the narrative of what I find fascinating about filmmakers like this, which is, you know, how do you talk about them aside from whatever the three movies that they're most known for? And, you know, is this somebody who you can look at and say, so he made these three movies that define a certain aspect of American filmmaking in the 1970s, not even in the 70s. He made these within five years, 71 to 76, Clute, Parallax View, All the President's Men, and then Love, Pain, and the Whole Damn Thing, kind of oddly in the middle of these three very similar films. And then, you know, is this somebody who you could just say, oh, well, then they, they, they did their best work and they moved on? Well, certainly he never made a film quite like those again, although no one would say Sophie's Choice is anything less than one of the, you know, more prominent films of the 80s. Mm. But Dream Lover is a film I have tremendous fondness for and is like, to me, you know, a, a genuinely good horror thriller type movie by a director who never made a genre movie other than Paranoia. It's not that this was, you know someone who, you know, like De Palma, who kind of went back and forth. It's actually a very strange and complex movie that, uh, again, was not on DVD for a really long time and was really hard to see, uh, but is, you know, much like a lot of De Palma or Michael Mann movies, kind of one of these excessively stylish 80s thrillers mm. that I think people would love but just never became a movie that you had to see if you were an aficionado. And then, you know, you mentioned Orphans, which, which I've actually not seen, basically for, for the same reason as everything else we're talking about. Uh, I just must have never stumbled upon a VHS of it. Mm. You know, he makes these movies that are so 70s, you know. President, All the President's Men Parallel View, those are 70s movies. Those are paranoid movies about distrust, about the government. They're post-Vietnam, they're post-Watergate, they're post-Nixon. These are movies that are about the moment of America in which they're made. And then in the 80s, he's kind of just making movies in various genres, thriller, comedy, weepy, rollover. It's actually a movie I really like. Uh, I, I don't remember much about it, although it's one of those, it's just another one that I saw and I said, you know, I don't, I, I haven't seen this one. And when I watched it with fairly low expectations, just because it was real down on the list, mm. I thought, this is actually a really good movie. This is just another, that's the thing. It's just everything of his I've ever watched. At the end of it, I just go, that's just, that's just a good movie. Yeah, that's not a movie that I have to kind of rationalize and say, oh, there's interesting things about it. And you can really kind of see what he was going for in it. Every one of his movies that I've seen, which looking at his filmography is all but about two or three. At the end of it, it's just that's a good movie. So he's kind of making a a weird assortment of films in the 80s that certainly would have lost the thread for anybody trying to follow his career. Presumed Innocent, 1990. Consenting Adults, 92. Pelican Brief, 93. It's Mm. a pretty, pretty tight uh, you know, four years of making those three movies there. Absolutely. And those films really sort of come to define a very particular 90s style that, that really stuck around for, for at least a decade. That very sort of sexy thriller, you know, a little conspiracy minded, but not in the same vein as those 70s thrillers. Yeah. They, I mean, you know, but that's the thing. Like, Presumed Innocent is a Harrison Ford movie at an era where that was one of the most exciting kinds of movies to get. 
And it's easy to imagine presumed innocent being placed alongside witness or a mosquito coast or the fugitive even uh, you know, regarding Henry, just like that kind of late 80s, early 90s run of Harrison Ford drama thrillers. But to me is a tremendously solid and exciting, confident movie with a really low key, incredible performance by Harrison Ford. But looking at it, it's, you know, a 90s Harrison Ford courtroom thriller, which Mm. doesn't necessarily say, oh, that must be a film by so-and-so, but is a movie that certainly was a hit. People definitely saw it. $220 million gross. That's insane for this kind of a movie. And, you know, what did that do for him? Well, I guess it looks like he got to make a couple other movies back to back. But, you know, that's an incredibly huge hit for somebody, you know, making their like 20th movie a decade plus, you know, after making what people would say is their best movie. But I think historically that probably has gotten more or less just put into the 90s legal thriller genre, the 90s Harrison Ford genre. And, you know, again, like, I don't know if the tape for Presumed Innocent would say from the director of of All the President's Men on it. I think it would just have a big picture of Harrison Ford. And then you would you would say, oh, my God, wait, this is the same filmmaker. And then, you know, Consenting Adults is sort of like his entry into the 90s erotic thriller genre, which is a fantastic genre with no shortage of great films. And to me, it's one of the best. And no one ever talks about it. Mm. It's a totally solid, weird lurid movie about you know adults and strange sexual proclivities between them it's very low-key it's very simple there's no shortage of erotic adult dramas from 1992 93 94 (laughs) but for some reason this is one that just didn't click it's maybe not sexy enough the the people you know maybe people would rather watch michael douglas be in this kind of movie than than uh, kevin klein and kevin spacey perhaps but uh for whatever reason it's another thing that when i said you know i've heard of that i didn't know he made that i watched it and i thought good movie really good Mm, movie yeah i don't know if you i don't know if you watched that i I did it was also interesting how similar it was to presumed innocent it's man has an affair woman is killed man is accused violent wife steps in to sort of help him out yeah he's definitely mining a vein in the 90s the way he did in the 70s and I think it's a much more personal character based type of approach which I find quite interesting you know contrasting those two sort of phases of his career and speaking of the sex scenes I did notice you know trying to watch all these films in as close to chronological order as I could manage was seeing that his early films for the most part feature these really awkward ugly sex scenes sterile cuckoo and love and pain and the whole damn thing clute you know all of these films up until i don't know where where you draw the line but i guess the sort of the end of the 70s start of the 80s where they're all very unappealing sex scenes and then suddenly in the 80s they're all soft lighting and l-shaped bed sheets and slow pans over the bodies and it suddenly becomes a very hollywood type of sex scene and i find that interesting and almost uh marks his career into two distinct phases where you can you can actually judge his style by the way he films sex hmm, interesting can't say i've ever made that connection but that's certainly as good of a, an auteurist argument as, as you can make <laughs> i wonder i wonder i'm not recalling sex scenes and starting over kind of a little bit of a light-hearted movie and probably doesn't have any yeah i don't think there are any they certainly allude to them a lot but um i can't remember any sure i mean i saw this a while ago during a phase where i just was sort of wondering why there was 
far fewer Jill Clayburgh movies than one might think there should be. Mm. You know, this is written and produced by James L. Brooks and shot by Sven Nykvist. Uh, you know, looks like it tripled its budget. Certainly a solid enough hit for 1979, but certainly was out of step with what people were probably wanting out of movies in 1979. But I, I suspect that Starting Over is a movie that, again, like just did not make the transition from videotape to DVD and therefore just kind of became a little bit less well-known than anything else James L. Brooks would have been involved with at that time. Yeah. And, you know, just before I kind of, you know, curious about any other things that you noticed, like kind of wrapping him up, like chronologically, like, you know, Pelican Brief is a movie that, again, like there's so many legal thrillers in the 90s and there's so many John Grisham movies in the 90s I think this is the best John Grisham adaptation period I think it's <laughs> one of the best Denzel Washington performances I think it's amazing Julia Roberts performance this is like to me not a lesser film this is like a, a major fun tight procedural movie with all the scrolling through microfilm that you would ever want out of something like this and again, it's just like everyone knows this title. They're probably confusing it with the firm or the client mm. or, you know, to, to circle back to the, the Coppola comparisons, the Rainmaker or other sort of Grisham or Grisham-esque thrillers from the 90s. But to me is, is the best of all of them. And again, when I watched it, I was like, oh, this isn't just like a fun kind of, you know, movie you get and kind of chill with while you're like getting a takeout pizza or something like this is actually just a really solid thriller like in a solid adult drama again it goes back to what people would certainly say are his glory days and it was like a deeply surprisingly wonderful film for me whereas you know Coppola's take on the same kind of material with the rainmaker everyone knew that was a Francis Ford Coppola movie everyone knew he was doing a Grisham movie and it's not that good all you would need to say to market this movie would be from the director of All the President's Men include, you know, another, you know, young, enterprising woman in peril and this sort of procedural thriller about being up against the system. And yet all the marketing for this movie ever would have been, I, I, I presume, would have just been here's Julia Roberts and Denzel Washington together, you know, doing this thriller. Mm. Look at that. The, the poster here says from the director of Presumed Innocent and all the president's men. Yeah, so I was going to mention that. Yeah. They, maybe they got wise to it for, yeah. for, for the marketing of this. But nevertheless, it's largely a star vehicle. But it is interesting to say, you know, a movie from two years ago and a movie from 20. Hmm. But, you know, that's just a good movie. And then Devil's Own, I, you know, I held off on watching for a while. And again, I watched it because I just kind of remember being inundated with trailers for it. I, when I watched it a couple years ago, I thought this movie is great. It's a great New York movie. This was the last film gordon willis ever shot a uh, yeah. very consistent collaboration throughout both of their careers and you know i watched a couple years ago i just thought again just a really good movie i don't know if it's a masterpiece i don't know if it's one of the best movies of the 90s <laughs> but it is very good so so yeah did, did anything jump out at you about this i know you you know when you, when i suggested it you said you know it was an opportunity to sort of dig in on some of the the films you were not familiar with or less familiar with Absolutely. I mean, especially loving all the president's men so much. I wanted to see as much, you know, his entire filmography, which which I did do. And it's always a revelation, you know, seeing those smaller films in between, sort of the missing films and sort of piecing together a picture of, of a filmmaker you have a very specific idea of and discovering there are so many other strings to their bow. Uh, particularly interesting seeing things like Sophie's Choice and See You in the Morning, which... Uh, is the only film in which he has the sole screenplay credit. He wrote and directed See You in the Morning and, and didn't do that for any of his other films. 
And it's a drama about Jeff Bridges playing a, a divorced man who marries a widow. And he makes it right after Sophie's Choice in which Kevin Klein plays this sort of manic guy who has these highs and lows and can be your best friend one minute and a villain the next. And Jeff Bridges' character kind of has the same thing, but he's not diagnosed. He's playing this jealous sort of gaslighting maniac and every time he lurches back into romance, he's always met with forgiveness and, and sort of something the film doesn't really acknowledge the way it did in Sophie's Choice. And, and I find that really interesting. And I always like I always try to resist as much as I can the filmmaker's biography and reading too much into what's happening in their personal life. But I was really curious watching See You in the Morning, wondering what in Pakula's life drove him to this story. Yeah, well... I will say that's one of the, the, the looking at filmography, the three films of his I've not seen. You're making a very compelling case for for watching that, but certainly the ones I, I haven't seen are the real the real oddball seeming ones that Orphans and uh, Comes a Horseman are the mm. ones that I am not at all familiar with. Well, ba based on how you've talked about his films and how they appeal to you, I think Comes a Horseman, which is the the western he made with uh, Jane Fonda, uh, Jason Robards, is really something you would enjoy. Yeah, well, it's certainly. I mean, just you know, in terms of picking a filmmaker, you'd have to think pretty hard to find someone else who dabbled as overwhelmingly in as many genres in as many different eras in any sort of imaginary video store that you could imagine these movies are in comedy drama thriller western you know oh. he's he's all over the place it's very interesting and to me again like i've never seen one of his movies that i thought was just like a, a bad movie yeah. like a like a movie that i had was like a chore to get through what did you what did you think of dream lover uh i didn't love it i was uh i wasn't entirely sure what he was trying to do i wasn't sure if it was like a metaphysical fantasy or a drama about trauma or a thriller like I still love his technique but yeah I couldn't uh couldn't quite get next to the script yeah well I suppose you're not the only one maybe I like it because I knew it was by a director who I generally liked it took forever to find a videotape of it <laughs> I had pretty low expectations when I watched it I thought this has got all the stuff I like in his movies it has phenomenally thought out and and very complex cinematography I mean he seems to have worked with nothing but the best cinematographers <laughs> uh, half his movies seem to be Gordon Willis he works with Sven Nyqvist and Nestor Almendros so he just he has this incredible eye for working with people who make images unlike anybody else and then you know I probably watched Dream Lover thinking it's not going to be very good and when i watched it i thought no it's just, it's just good yeah you know i still think any of his movies for me go below a b and some of them are an a plus and i think that's a pretty admirable range for someone who worked over so many decades and so many changing you know paradigms of the industry that he was working in absolutely i mean you you really can't ask for much more than that from a from a filmography it's very compelling and you know like i said earlier these filmmakers that sort of historically just they do not float to the top of what people want when they look back there's never been a pacula retrospective in new york in, in my time here you know that's the kind of thing like i feel like he's perfectly just ready for that three of his movies would be massive sellouts and you know clute clute plays here in new york all the time and it's always packed it screens constantly right i haven't seen a print of parallax view turn up in quite a while but i certainly would like to and then the other ones I've never seen any of these movies pop up in any sort of repertory program. And like we're saying, some of these movies did not make the transition from, from VHS to DVD. So a lot of this sort of like lack of feeling for, for these kinds of filmmakers is simply due to 
availability and access. Well, I hope you do get to see uh, see the the few gaps that you have, and uh, and I hope everyone listening, if they haven't seen any or, or even many of his films, should should seek out as many as they can because. I, I hope so. Mm. I, I think that would be fan. I mean, you know, like I said, three of these films, probably everyone who, you know, listens to your show has seen. Mm. And then, you know, I think there's a lot to discover. If people looked at those 90s movies. I think there's a lot of surprises for people to watch Presumed Innocent Consenting Adults and Pelican Brief. <laughs> I think people would really enjoy revisiting Devil's Own, removed from the sort of moment of Brad Pitt exploding onto the scene. I think, you know, looking at Rollover and Dream Lover, there's some real great work throughout his entire filmography. And you know what? People should seek out your films as well. Everyone go go watch Queen of Birth. Go watch Listen Up, Philip. Go watch Color Wheel. I do believe most of these, you know, are, are available uh, in, in all forms of, of worldwide streaming somehow or another. Absolutely. Alex, thank you so much for joining us this month. Great. Thank you for having me. Wow, that was so interesting. Um, Good get, Lee, with um, Alex Ross Perry. I was so kind of surprised to find out that Pacula had produced To Kill a Mockingbird, which is one of my favourite films, you know. It's just such a beautiful film. And he he produced that with Robert Mulligan. Well, Robert Mulligan was the director Mm. that he worked with um, on some other films. But really early in his career... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was, and it was one he brought to Mulligan and had to convince him to do it. Like, yeah. Because he was so passionate about it. Yeah. But I think my favourite of Pacula's films is Clute. Right. Um, it's just, I've watched it so many times. It's just such a, such a film of its time, you know. I think it was 1971 and with Jane Fonda mm. and um, Donald Sutherland. The way it's shot and lit, I mean, it was, it was shot by um, Gordon Willis. Gordon Willis is actually his name. Yeah, and it, it just looks so great. Um, and it's just such so sort of grimy and and this this claustrophobic tension of, of you know, this call girl who's being being stalked by a sociopath and mm. yeah, it's, it's really stylish film. Yeah. You, you like Clue? I loved Clue. I watched it for the first time for this show. Oh, I've never really? seen it Yeah, loved it. And I could see how it really fit with Parallax and all the presidents yeah. that trilogy of, of, of paranoia. Yeah. And, oh, so good. One thing uh, I didn't mention with Alex is what, um, what uh, Pacula was going to do after his death. You know, he died unexpectedly, like in a car, in a car accident. car crash, yeah. He'd apparently planned to direct a comedy he'd written called A Tale of Two Strippers about two exotic male dancers in Las Vegas <laughs> on the run from Hitman, which sounds like some like it hot, but it was, it was going to star then unknowns Ashton Kutcher and Josh Duhamel, who oh. had been hired for it. And the other project he was apparently looking at was No Ordinary Time about Franklin Roosevelt's time in the White House which would have been sort of a return to his presidential interests. Well, that, uh, you know, those two ideas just kind of encapsulate the fact that Pacula was able to bring together this sort of, um, you know, audience-pleasing sensibility mm. with, with you know, real sort of interesting political ideas as well. Yeah. I mean... But as you say, he produced uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, all about morality in the face of injustice. And he, he did a film about White House corruption, all the president's mm. men, and he did Sophie's Choice about authority separating kids from their parents. I, I just don't know what his films, if they have any relevance today, I mean, today's climate. I oh, can't there's think no of relevance. No, We've it's... moved so far we beyond have. those problems. Yeah, I love the future. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, uh, we'll see the rest of you next month. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.